So uh, we had a little snafu. The uh, little wireless mic broke as I was putting it on, so uh, we're going to try to do this. So I apologize if you can't hear me today. Um, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. Am I good, Sean? Okay. All right. So we're, we'll be in John chapter 11, but before we do that, uh, I just want to plug uh, just real quickly. Uh, this week we are starting our Bible studies, and so we have one for men and one for women. And so the women, they will be going through a book by Jen Wilkin called uh, Ten Words to Live By. And so what that book entails, uh, it really starts out with the premise of we've been taught our whole life that religion is not about the rules, it's about a relationship. And so sometimes we've, we've discounted what God's word says, what his commands mean for our life. And so what this book is going to walk us through is a book, or walk us through the Ten Commandments and how those are really words that we can delight in, how we can find joy and find freedom in God's word, in his command, in his law for our life. So if you're a lady, uh, they actually have two options. They'll be meeting, I believe, Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock, and then also uh, on Wednesday evenings at 6.30 over the next six weeks. And so for the guys, we will be going through a book called The Unsaved Christian. And so that sounds a little bit like an oxymoron, but what it really deals with is, especially around here, the number one false religion that we fight around here is what we would call cultural Christianity, right? Are you familiar with that? That people who they know about Jesus, but they haven't really surrendered their life to them. And so this book really looks at like, what is cultural Christianity? How do we identify it? And how do we address it? Like, how do we share the gospel to somebody that says, yeah, I know about Jesus. I know what he did, but they don't really have a true relationship. So with that, I would invite you to, to come to those. So we have books available on the Welcome Center right out front. So you can sign up for that uh, and grab a book. If we need to order more books, that would be even better. So both, uh, both of those meet Wednesday nights at 630. But like I said, the women will also have one at 10 o'clock on Wednesday mornings. And so uh, let's jump in. So we are in John chapter 11. This will be our last week in John 11. And so we have seen a lot of good out of this chapter, we're coming off this incredible miracle where Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And so just before he did that, he declared that he is the resurrection and the life. That he taught us that he is better than any miracle because those miracles themselves validate his claims to be the son of God. And so the point for us that we saw last week is not about what Jesus does. It's not about the miracles themselves. But it's about who Jesus is, because in him we find life. So today, uh, this passage is probably what I would call a transitional passage. Jesus himself isn't going to play a particularly large role in the passage today. But even despite that, we don't want to speed through that, right? We don't speed through things here at the journey anyway, right? But we don't want to gloss over what John is teaching us here, all right? Because John is going to show us what people choose when they don't choose Jesus. And so as we start off today, we're going to see a, a, a change in a lot of the focus. We're coming to a pivotal point in the narrative. And so the cross is going to become the focal point from this point all the way to the end of John's gospel, that the cross is going to be in focus from here on out. And so we know that everything in the gospel 
Everything that comes before this point is looking towards the cross, and that everything after the cross looks back to it. And so this becomes John's entire focus, the impending sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins, everything that we just sang about just a few minutes ago. And so as we think about the cross, we want to remember what we have seen, what we've just seen with Lazarus. We saw that his resurrection, the resurrection of Lazarus, gives us assurance of Jesus's power over death before he goes to the cross. And so as we talk about the cross today, we're going to see two main purposes stand out. And they're coming from two different perspectives. So the first perspective that we're going to see is that of the religious leaders, that they have their own purpose for the cross. But then we're going to see that God has a better purpose, that as he works to accomplish his sovereign will, he has a much different purpose than what these religious leaders have. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 11. We'll be reading uh, verses 45 through verse 57. So this is what God's word says. John writes, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. <clears throat> Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus, and they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Let's pray. So Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you are better, that your purpose is better than anything in this world. And so we thank you that you work to bring about your purpose in our lives, that you desire for us to believe in you. And so we thank you for that grace that you give us in order to believe. So we ask that you continue to move in our hearts, that we would truly know that you are the Son of God, that you are the only hope for our salvation. And so we praise you today for your goodness, that, you, that we, God, that we are healed by your stripes, that we are healed by your wounds. So we give you all the glory as we dive into your word. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So we talked about this just a little bit last week as we start off. Uh, look again at verses 45 through 46. John writes, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary saw what he had done and believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And so we see that many, after witnessing this miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead, that many believed in Jesus, that this miracle of raising Lazarus spurs on their belief in Jesus because they realize that the miracle points to the reality 
of who Jesus is, that they really understood that, that they grasped what Jesus was doing, that their faith is not in the miracle, but in the one who performed the miracle. And that is the key. And so we spent a lot of time last week dissecting that. And so we want to understand that that's foundational for our faith, that our faith is in the one who performed the miracle, not the miracle itself. But we see that there's a division that some of the people around who witnessed this, they went to the Pharisees. And so we can assume that there's a malicious intent there because of the way that John contrasts them with the group that believed. And so this has also been a recurring theme that we've seen throughout the entirety of John, that the teaching and the miracles that Jesus performs, it causes division. That even though these people see all these signs, they see all these wonders, they hear Jesus' words, it's still not enough to prompt some of those people to believe. And isn't it crazy? Isn't it absolutely crazy to see a dead man walk out of a tomb and to say, you know what, that's okay. Like, that's all right. But I'm not going to believe in that, right? And so we don't want to be surprised by this because Jesus reminds us of this elsewhere in Scripture. So look at what Jenna just read from Luke chapter 16. This story of Jesus teaching in a parable says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Now, this, this is a different Lazarus. This is just a story that Jesus is telling. This isn't the Lazarus that we just saw. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, in hell, being In torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And so he's pointing them to Scripture. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Right? And that's what we've just seen with this miracle. Right? We've seen this with Lazarus, and still people will not believe. And this even points to the greater tragedy that when Jesus goes to the cross and he is resurrected from the grave, People witness that, and it still does not cause them to believe. And that should break our hearts, because the same is true for us. John isn't just speaking to the crowds here. He's not just speaking to the people gathered around. He's not just speaking to the original audience that would have had his gospel. But he is speaking directly to us, that we are faced with that exact 
same division today. That we are faced with the question, is Jesus really the Son of God? Is Jesus really the resurrection and the life? Or is he something else? So some of us, we're in that same boat as those who went to the Pharisees. Like Even though you may be here, you may be in that same boat as the Pharisees, that Jesus' miracle, all the teaching that we've gone through, hasn't prompted you to believe. These might be nice stories. They're pleasant to listen to. We, we might like them, but they're not enough to surrender our lives to. And instead, we're, we're here for some other reason, whether it's a social expectation, whether it's checking off a list, saying, hey, God, I, I was there. That's got to count for something. But we're definitely not going to surrender our lives. And so as we move through the, the text today, if that's you, I want you to see yourself in this story because John is speaking directly to you. And he wants you to see what Jesus has said and what he has done. And so I don't want you to witness the resurrection from the dead and be unchanged by it because all of it points to life in Jesus. So let's look at verses 47 and 48. John writes, Therefore the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So we see that the, the religious leaders, they convene their council. This is what is called the Sanhedrin. You'll, you might see that referenced elsewhere in Scripture. And so this is the highest judicial body in Israel. And so it's responsible for judicial functions, for legislative functions, for executive functions, for basically governing all of Israel, but they are still under the control of Rome. That the Jews, they, they occupy a semi-autonomous uh, state under the Roman Empire. And so they have this council, but they're still under the control of Rome. And so this council, it was comprised of 70 members, and they included the chief priest, former chief priests, family members of the high priest families, and the Pharisees. And so of these 70, they're divided into two main groups. And so the first one you'll see reference to throughout Scripture is the Sadducees. And so these are all the people that have a priestly background, the high priest, uh, members of their family, members of the priesthood, they are the Sadducees. And so the big uh, delineating point for these Sadducees is that they do not believe in the resurrection at all. They don't believe in it at all. And so you can imagine what sort of a crisis this is, right? They're gathered together and they're like, hey, did you hear? Some guy, Lazarus, was dead and now he's alive? Oh, that's fake news. That can't be right, right? We don't need a fact check on that. That's not real. So you can imagine the crisis that they are feeling, all right? And the second group that we have are the Pharisees. And so they're in the minority in the Sanhedrin, but they are an influential minority. And so it's interesting that they're usually at odds with the Sadducees, that they usually butt heads. But in this, we see that they are united by one thing, this time, that they are united by their hatred of Jesus. And so they have this question, what in the world are we going to do about Jesus? What are we going to do? 
And so apparently they've accepted the eyewitness testimony that Lazarus truly was dead and now he's alive. And so the Sadducees, they're not even protesting that. They, they don't protest the authenticity of Lazarus being alive. And so this is the opposite of what we saw in John chapter 9 with the man who was born blind. Do you remember what happened there? They go, these religious leaders, they go and they question the man. They're like, were you really blind? Because we don't believe you. And they go and they ask his parents. And their parents are like, yep, he was born blind. We don't know what happened, but go and ask him. And so the, back in John chapter 9, they questioned all of this. But you'll notice they're not doing that now. <laughs> they realize that what happened with Lazarus was legit, that it really was true. And we see this even as they acknowledge the signs that Jesus has performed. Because that word there you, that they use, signs, that points to events with special meaning of greater significance. Things that point to supernatural origins. And so they realize that these miracles that Jesus is performing, they're a big deal. And so we want to note that their lack of belief isn't from a lack of information. They have all the information that they need in order to believe in Jesus. But instead, they lack the proper motivation in order to believe, don't they? And so we ask, what is their motivation then? And so we see that they are concerned with how Jesus will affect them, right? They're coming from a very selfish mindset. They don't care whether or not Jesus is right or whether or not he's good. They're only concerned with how Jesus affects their standing. And so their, their concern is that Jesus is going to win universal approval amongst the people. And that's ironic because every time that Jesus begins to build a following, what has he done? He's pushed away the crowds, right? Jesus doesn't want to be made king. He doesn't want the people to crown him as their leader. And so the, but that's what the religious leaders are all worried about. And so because of that, they're worried that the Romans will take away their place and their nation. And so we've seen before that they say, hey, this guy, Jesus, he's just got a demon, so we don't need to worry about him. But now they've said the quiet part out loud. They've given their real reason why they're worried about Jesus is that the Romans will take away their place and their nation when they say that our place, our nation, the emphasis there is on them and them alone, the 70 in that room. They're not worried about the people. They don't care what the people think. They don't really have a concern for anybody else. And so they're only worried about losing their personal privileges that have been granted to them by Rome. And so the irony of this is they lose their place, they lose their nation anyway, just a couple decades after this, in 70 AD, when the Romans come in and they wipe out Jerusalem, they destroy the temple. It happens anyway. The thing that they worry about instead of Jesus and so look at what Matt Carter and Josh Redberg say. They describe what it is that these religious leaders, what they're actually believing. But then they're also pointing back to us. And so empty religion, empty religion practiced by people, here being the religious leaders, but again, pointing to us, practiced by people who come to church, give money, say and do the right thing, and are moral, but have no relationship with Jesus Christ. People that practice that empty religion is always revealed by a person's focus. 
that religion is self-centered and fear-motivated, and it always leads to spiritual rationalization. Since it's not rooted in the unchanging grace of God, it will waver based on what benefits us. What we think keeps us in God's favor. Ultimately, religion is our attempt to maintain our position. And that's exactly what we see with the Sanhedrin. But again, this should hit at us. That's what we want to wrestle with. And so we see that the leaders, they are unwilling to believe in Jesus, even though they know that Lazarus was raised from the dead. They're basically going to pretend that it doesn't matter. And they don't care that these miracles that they're witnessing from Jesus, they don't care that it actually validates his claim to be the Messiah because all they're worried about is if these expectations of the Messiah around Jesus, if they continue, that that would force Rome to take action and the leaders would lose their own power and their own authority. It's a very self-serving, very selfish motivation. And again point of irony, they're waiting for the Messiah to come. These religious leaders, that's what they've built their entire theology on. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. They believe he's going to come as a military leader, that he's going to overthrow Rome. But here, they don't want Rome overthrown. They want Rome to stay exactly where it is. They want to maintain the status quo because that is what's good for them. It's absolute theological malpractice on their part. All the stuff they've been teaching the people to believe, they're trying to keep it the same. And so it's sad and it's heartbreaking. And we want to ask ourselves, are we any different from that? That we may say, I want to follow the Lord, but only if it's good for me. Right? Only if I get to maintain the status quo. Only if I get to maintain my position in life. We want to wrestle with that. So let's look at verses 49 through 53. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. And so we're introduced to Caiaphas, who is the high priest that year. And so that year is a time marker for us, but he has actually been high priest for 18 years. And so he was appointed by the Roman prefect, Valerius Gratus. And so to me, I've watched enough crime shows, enough police shows to know that that seems very suspect. That would speak to his motive, right? We got some attorneys in here. They would say he's got motive to hang on to his status, hang on to his power. But doesn't he sound kind of like a mob boss here? He, he wants the, the whole council to know that Jesus is a problem. And what do you do with problems? you've watched those mobster movies. You eliminate the problem, right? And that's what Caiaphas is pointing towards. He declares that Jesus has to die, that that is better for them than losing everything to Rome. And so what he wants to do is he wants to make a Jewish problem look like 
a Roman problem because we'll see this elsewhere in Scripture that they want Jesus to be king instead of Caesar. That's what they're going to say, that Jesus wants to be king instead of Caesar. And so because of that, that Jesus should be executed in order to spare their authority and their autonomy from Rome. And so the death of an innocent man would benefit them as the leaders of Israel. It would benefit them with Rome. But here's the incredible thing, the absolutely incredible thing, that Caiaphas didn't say this on his own initiative, did he? He didn't say it on his own because God gives prophecy. And so if you'll remember back to John chapter 10, John, uh, Jesus tells us that he will lay down his life for his sheep, right? Jesus has already said that, that he, he was going to lay down his life by his own authority, not by the authority of Caiaphas, not by the authority of the Sanhedrin. And so what's happening here, Caiaphas thinks he's pretty smart that he's figured out a solution, but he's actually repeating Jesus's own words, is he not? And so we see that God gives him this prophecy, that it's sovereign, that God is displaying his sovereignty because Caiaphas, he's not holy. He's not a disciple. He's not even trying to follow the Lord. He's not even trying to give a prophecy. But what God does is he brings greater fulfillment to Caiaphas's words than he ever realizes because the plain sense meaning carried an extended meaning, meaning ordained by God. It's absolutely incredible. And all of that, every single bit of it, points to our substitutionary atonement by Jesus on the cross. And so Caiaphas, as he's giving this statement, he intends to murder Jesus, to use the court, to use the council for judicial murder. But what Caiaphas intends for murder, God actually means for substitu substitutionary atonement. And this sounds a lot like what we saw in Genesis. If you remember the story of Joseph as he meets his brothers after they sold him into slavery and, and Joseph has a whole slew of trouble. But Joseph eventually arises in prominence back in Egypt and he meets his brothers again. What does he tell his brothers? Do you remember? He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so God here he anticipates and he ordains the cross, that in his sovereignty, the cross is both murder and it's both atonement at the same time. And so Caiaphas says that Jesus has to die for the people. You may see that translated in place of. And so he's using temple language there, the language that they would use for sacrifices. And he's invoking the idea of the Passover where an animal dies in the place of a person to atone for their sins and to cover their sins. And so we see this teaching throughout the New Testament in reference to Jesus. And so look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 24, he says, He, Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is by his wounds that you have been healed. And so Jesus is going to die for the people, that he is going to be the ransom for sins on the cross, that he would be the scapegoat for our sins, and because of that, the punishment for our sins does not fall on us. 
It falls on Jesus on the cross, that he pays our penalty for sin, that he is our substitute, that he dies in our place, that we are saved through his death, and that we do not perish because he dies instead of us. So I like how John MacArthur sums this up. He says, while Caiaphas uttered blasphemy against Christ, God parodied his statement into truth. I love how he says that. He parodied, parodied his statement into truth. The responsibility for the wicked meaning of his words belonged to Caiaphas. But God's providence directed the choice of words so as to express the heart of God's glorious plan of salvation. That he was actually used by God as a prophet because he was the high priest. And originally the high priest was the means of God's will being revealed. It's just incredible how God takes Caiaphas's words and uses them for his own purpose. But that's not all that we see, right? We see an expansion of this prophecy as he says that this is not for the nation only. And so it's to include believers scattered abroad. And so in the context, Caiaphas, he's anticipating that the Jews that were sent out into the diaspora, into the exile, that all of them would come back to Israel, that they would share in God's kingdom in the promised land. But actually, Caiaphas's prophecy includes the establishment of the church. So what Caiaphas is pointing to is here in this room today, the establishment of the church, that God anticipated the inclusion of the Gentiles into salvation. And so these are the children of God scattered abroad, that it's not just the Jewish people, but it includes us. That's been another recurring theme that we've seen throughout John, that God is going to combine Jews and Gentiles into one group. He's including them into the church that the real, the true Israel of God is not the nation, but it's the church. And that we as believers, that we are the new Israel, and we are under the great high priest Jesus, who is better than Caiaphas, and he is better than any human high priest. So again, think back to John chapter 10, where Jesus teaches us that he is the good shepherd, and he said that I have other sheep that aren't of this Jewish fold. Right, And so he, he says that I'm taking them out of this pen, out of the pen of Judaism. I'm taking them out through the door. And Jesus told us that he is the door. He is the door of salvation. And that he is bringing them out to create a new flock with these other sheep. And that there's no longer any need for a pen for protection. Because Jesus, as the good shepherd, is our protection. Because he lays down his life for the sheep in order to raise it up again and resurrection. And so we see that they intend to kill Jesus, that any trial moving forward would be a mere formality. They've already passed the sentence. They've already sentenced him to death, and they've already judged Jesus guilty of blasphemy. And again, here's more irony. They're sitting there, what are we going to do? Imagine being in that room. What are we going to do? This guy is raising people from the dead. What are we going to do? And you can almost feel like there's some guy in the back. Ooh, I know, I know. Let's kill him. Let's kill the guy who can raise people from the dead. It seems absurd, doesn't it? That they're going to try to kill the guy that can give life. And so I like how Josh Moody sums this up, sums up their heart. 
He says, what sort of hard heart must you have to see a resurrection and then plot a murder? It's incredible. So let's look at the last few verses, verses 54 through 57. John writes, therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. And so we see that Jesus, he's no longer walking publicly. publicly. And so we want to emphasize that this is not out of fear, that Jesus isn't afraid of death. But these religious leaders, they've given orders to have Jesus seized. It seems like their plot is really widely known. It's escaped the, the 70 people that were there making that decision. And so everybody knows that Jesus is to be seized. And they're asking, is Jesus going to show up? But again, as a nod to God's sovereignty, that word orders that they use, every time we see that in the Gospel of John, that is always connected to a command from God. And so we want to see that as they give orders, that God is actually, again, ordaining the events. And we're reminded that Jesus is going to, he's going to lay down his life by his own authority. He's not going to lay it down before it's time, but he will lay down his life at the ordained, ordained time. And so we see mention of the Passover. This is the third and final Passover that's mentioned in John. And so just to set the stage, we are now at six days before Jesus is to die. And so did any of y'all ever watch the show 24? Like that show would give me heartburn. It would make my heart hurt. You know, they'd have the clock at the beginning and the end of the episode. And so maybe that's what we need to put behind us so that we can see just how far Jesus has left. And so the next eight chapters in John is going to cover essentially six days as we go through it. And so that'll probably take us two and a half years to get through. We've planned on one sermon for every hour that Jesus has left, right? <laughs> we'll have that countdown. But we want to see the significance here. As John mentions the Passover, it's more than just a time marker. What he is doing is he's pointing us to Passover, and he's pointing us to the lambs that are going to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And so that is what John is pointing us to, that someone must satisfy the debt of sin, that someone's going to have to pay, but that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that he will lay down his life for his sheep, that God will deal definitively with sin on the cross, that his judgment will pass over us because of Jesus, that this is the good news, this is what we celebrate with communion, that on the cross his body is broken for us, that his blood is poured out for us. And so that's the good news, and that's what we are looking forward to. That is what John is pointing us to. And so that brings us to our application, and there's only one today. And again, it's a familiar one. What are we going to believe about Jesus? What are we going to believe about Jesus? 
that this is what we want to wrestle with because Jesus is confronting each of us. He's not just confronting the crowd. He's not just confronting the religious leaders, but he's telling us that there's no indifference when it comes to Jesus, that he is provoking division among us, that we must make our choice when it comes to Jesus. So today, as we look at the passage, we saw what unbelief looks like to some of these people. We saw the selfishness of the religious leaders that they're only looking out for their own, their own good. But that's a current problem. That's not just something that happened back then, is it? And so for us, we see it as a problem of convenience, that we want to maintain our status quo, don't we? That we want Jesus to fit our mold We ask the question, how does Jesus really benefit me? Do we really want to give over control to our life? Like sometimes we'll say, I'll follow as long as he's not too invasive on my priorities. Or as we saw earlier, that religion is our attempt to maintain our position, that we just want to hold on where we're at. And so we are confronted with that same choice that John is laying out here. We've seen these miracles Right? We've seen these healings. We've even seen the resurrection. And we know that Jesus' resurrection is coming. We've heard all of these teachings. And so what do we do with that? And so that keeps bringing us back to this question that C.S. Lewis poses so eloquently. He gives us a choice, but his full quote will be on the screen. Right? But he gives us this choice of three things that we can arrive at when we consider Jesus that either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's telling the truth, right? And so, first option, he's a liar. And so, if you're here today, I don't think many of us would be in this boat, that we're probably not going to consider Jesus an outright liar. I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that of us. That we probably think that there's some mental agreement that these stories of Jesus are true, and that there's no real harm in believing them, so long as we get to keep our own, our own position. And so that, that means that we probably think that he's crazy then. If we don't think that he's a liar, that he's crazy. And again, that's probably not the language that we would use when we talk about Jesus. I don't think if I encountered any of y'all in the lobby, y'all would say, hey, that Jesus guy, he's pretty crazy, right? That's not the language we would use. But again, if we take this point of view, what we're saying is that we, we roughly believe in Jesus. That he says some hard things and we can get behind most of it. But this is how we equate him to being the great moral teacher that C.S. Lewis talks about. That what we're doing is we're essentially equating him with the miracle worker that we talked about last week. That we don't deny the miracles or his teaching. But we don't either embrace, we don't embrace that they're calling us to something deeper. So the question we ask of Jesus is, does he really want me to go all in on him? That's where we think that Jesus is crazy. Does he really want me to surrender to him? Does he really expect me to give up my way of life in order to follow him? Doesn't Jesus want me to be comfortable and to be happy? Doesn't he just want me to try my best and not do too many bad things? 
Does he really expect me to sacrifice my life and give everything over to him? Does he really? And fill in the blank in your own life. All of that sounds crazy. All of that sounds crazy. That we don't want to give up the status quo in our own mind. That we're hesitant to hand over the control. But if we're going to do that, we want to see that Jesus is the truth. And if he is the truth, what is the truth about Jesus? And just as we saw today, we saw that he is our substitute. That he is our substitutionary atonement. That he took our place on the cross. That he died in our place. Let that sink in. In our place. That it should have been you and me on that cross. That he took the wrath of God for us, for our sin. That he laid down his life for us. And here's the kicker. He gives us new life. He gives us new life. So look again at those verses we read just a few minutes ago. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have new life in him. 1 Peter 2.24 That he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds... You have been healed. By his stripes, what we just sang, by his stripes, we are healed. That we become the righteousness of God in Jesus. That we die to sin and live in righteousness in Jesus. And so he gives us an entirely new life because he is life. And that is radically different from the world. It calls us to submit to him. He calls us to follow him. And he calls us to give everything we are to him. And so when we come to that point, we realize that there's no halfway to believing that. There's no halfway that he teaches good things, but it's crazy. I'm not going to, I'll believe, but I'm not, I'm going to hold everything back, right? There's no halfway that we cannot accept his teachings and then live like we're not changed. And so if we believe who Jesus says that he is, that changes absolutely everything for us, does it not? Changes everything, that we are either all in or we are all out, that there's no in-between, that either we are believing in him when we see those miracles, we know that he is pointing to himself He's pointing to the greater work of salvation that he's doing. So either we are believing or we are those same people going to the Pharisees and said, hey, you see what that guy's doing? Maybe we ought to kill him. And so we saw that in today's response. That some saw the miracles and they believed in Jesus. These religious leaders, they don't believe in Jesus. They've revealed their selfish motives, right? So the question for us is what do we believe about Jesus? So stand with me as we pray. So Lord God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the truth that you reveal in your word. 
We thank you for your sovereignty that, that you took the evil plans of men and that you have used them for our redemption. That by your stripes, God, that we are healed. So God, I pray that we would wrestle with belief, that we would wrestle with our surrender to you. And I ask that you would bring those trapped in death. I ask that you would bring them to life. That we would see your salvation take hold. And so Lord, we know that we know that we can't bring this about on our own. And so we ask that you do only what you can do. We ask that you move in this place, that you move in our hearts. And so we thank you for the grace that you give us to believe. So we pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So as we move into this time of response, wrestle with that question. So the, the altar is open down here if you want to come and pray. Lay yourself out before the Lord. Caleb and I will be down here. We'll have elders available in the back. If you want to pray with somebody, seek one of us out that you move or you respond as God leads you.